electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, thank you very much. Uh, Welcome, everybody, to The Exchange. I'm Tyler Matheson, and here's what's ahead this hour. Elevated euphoria, bullish sentiment now among individual investors, surged last week and is rivaling those 2018 highs. So is this a reason to worry? Plus, Viva Las Vegas as the city tries to come back from the pandemic shutdown. We will speak with the CEO of Caesars about demand the future, and where visitors are spending their money. And speaking of recovery, the first new airline in 15 years is getting set to take off as the company bets that travel is poised to return in a big way. We've got the details ahead, but we begin with today's markets. And guess who is going to join me right over here? I can talk the talk and I can walk the walk, Bob. (laughs) You can certainly walk the walk and talk the talk. Tyler, you have been doing this many years. You're a dear friend. Good to see you. Hey, guys, we're off the highs, but that's no worry for the markets because we're at new highs on the S&P 500. It's been a great week and there's been a lot of rotation happening and a lot of optimism out there. Some say too much optimism. We have a new high on the S&P 500. Uh, Dow Industrials hit a closing high on Monday. So we're meh, maybe 80 points away from that, but that's pretty small potatoes. NASDAQ has had a good week, but it's about 2% from the historic highs. They hit that historic high back in February. Remember when interest rates went up, a lot of those growth names came down, but it's trying to play catch up. Let's take a look at what's moving the markets. The important thing here is just a lot of euphoria. We saw uh, Fed Chairman Jay Powell on with Sarah Eisen just a few moments ago. He said the recovery is incomplete on an even, sounded very, very dovish. Uh, tax hike fears are diminishing a bit. Uh, earnings, well, we're going to get earnings soon, but they are expecting a lot better guidance. Uh, at least the markets are expecting that. And why shouldn't the markets and investors be euphoric when you just you get this kind of data? Well, here's what's important. Look at the sectors here. The rates have been trending down in the last few days. So technology stocks, consumer discretionary stocks that were hit hard in February on rate hikes, they've made a comeback. So we're getting rotation, another round of rotation. And those value names, the energy stocks, the bank stocks, they've been faltering a little bit. Not a lot, but enough to see a notable rotation. What's a rotation? Well, those mega cap names, those mega cap text names that got killed in February, down 15, 20 percent. Guess what? They're all making a comeback. We have new highs once again on Alphabet. Uh, Apple, not a new high, but look at these nice moves with the S&P up about 2% this week. Uh, Microsoft essentially is at a new high. Facebook moving up big. Even the chip stocks have moved up. So rotation coming back, tech's coming back. Remember, we're going to get some inflation news in the next couple of days. That'll determine whether this tech rotation continues. Guys, back to you. All right, Robert, thank you very much. The Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell speaking with our Sarah Eisen during the IMF seminar on the global economy just minutes ago, and he reiterated the Fed's steadfast commitment to asset purchases throughout the recovery. The recovery, though, here remains uneven and incomplete. What we've said about uh, about our asset purchases is, is that they would continue at the current pace until we see substantial further progress toward our goals. 
and that will really mean actual progress. We're not looking at forecasts for this purpose. We're looking at actual progress toward our goal. So we'll be able to measure that. That's uh, inflation. It's also maxim- the, the indicators of maximum employment. In fact, so benign were the words from the Fed chair that the esteemed finance professor Jeremy Siegel at Wharton saying in just the last half hour that this is the most dovish Fed chair he's ever seen. The continued unwavering support from the Fed may be one reason why investors are more bullish than they've been in years. The latest AAAII investor sentiment index showing that bullishness has spiked to its highest level since early 2018. With us to discuss, Quincy Crosby, Chief Market Strategist for Potential Financial, and Andrew Slimman, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager uh, at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Let, let's uh, Welcome to both of you. Andrew, do you agree with uh, uh, Jeremy Siegel that this is the most dovish Fed chair of our memory? Sounds to me that way. And, you know, and, and not only that, but although you see the VIX, the volatility index is back down to where it was pre-pandemic which is actually dangerous because it means that, you know, people are very, very optimistic. And Tyler, you've been in this business a long time. You know, when people say, well, I expect a lot of volatility in the future. That's because we've had volatility in the past recently. Now people don't expect much volatility. Uh, and so the VIX is very low. And so that that in the Fed being so dovish is a little bit of a warning sign as euphoria is building. I, I agree. And so, Quincy, let me let me pick up on that point that uh, Andrew just made. Not only do you have the VIX coming back to a rather, rather tepid levels, but you also have that AAII index or reading at the highest level of bullishness uh, in several years, at least three years or thereabouts. And the difference, the gap between bulls and bears is very wide. Is this something to worry about? Because typically when that's happened, it augurs something not so good. Well, you know, you also have the credit spreads are, are, are nice and tight. Credit default swaps are indicating a solid, uh, robust, even robust backdrop for uh, for the economy and the market. So, yeah, it is it is something to worry about because you, you worry about too much liquidity. You worry that perhaps there is another fund, whether it's a family slash hedge fund that has taken on too much debt and gets a margin call. And the derivatives aren't working the way they were supposed to work. You know, there's an old expression from the market where there's one cockroach, there are many. And, you know, we saw what happened uh, last week, the week before. We could see more. And, and that's always the concern in the market is that you build up and, you know, you, you, you're successful. You keep going at it. And then ultimately something comes along to change the thesis. And regarding the VIX... We've been waiting for it to come down below 20 and stay below 20. This is also very important in terms of the mindset of the market. Before I turn back to Andrew uh, to pick up on something that I find very interesting in his commentary, I want to ask you this. So, in other words, if you have a worry, Quincy, it's not because you're worried about any fundamental issue. You're not you don't seem to be worried about the economy, about corporate profits, uh, about what the Fed is going to do. You're worried about some Unknown, unknown, some exogenous factor getting in the way here. Am I reading you right? Well, well, well yes, exactly. And even you look, you know, we have the Fed ultra dovish because it has a new, in essence, a new mandate. They broaden the maximum employment mandate. And that's new. So we have to we have to worry in some way about their framework, their timetable. And then the question becomes, 
when do they, with their glide path, begin to talk about, just begin to talk about the potential for tapering those monthly uh, purchases? That mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. is something that's out there. This all works if everything stays the same. Rates stay low. We have largesse from the fiscal side, ultra-dovishness. Mm-hmm. If something comes in and changes this calculus and equation, margin calls are going to be next. Andrew, I read in, in my notes that, that, and I was saying it yesterday, has the easy money been made? And, 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 you, and you make the point that, well, yes, there has been some money made in the value trade as, as it's moved from uh, big cap tech over into uh, financials, energy, and some of the other uh, cyclicals and so forth. But you say there's still a lot of room left to run in this trade. Explain why sure. and what, well, what sectors yeah, that, that I should yeah. put money in now. Sure. So, look, I can't stand when people say, well, the easy money has already been made, you know, as if people talk about the easy money in the past. And all I'm saying is, look, I think there's easy. Listen to what Quincy just said. She said the Fed has pivoted. They are not. They're going to look at actual data and unemployment is their key metric. Okay, that to me says and you get you get uh, weaker data today. That means the Fed's going to stay dovish longer. And the, the kiss of death for value stocks is when the Fed pivots and starts to tighten. So in my opinion, you have a long way to go in terms of value because as much as value always outperforms right. off the low, coming out of recession, it actually didn't start outperforming this go-round until the fall when, we, when it was clear there was a vaccination in front of us. So there was a delayed response to value financials, materials, industrials, energy, working, okay? And that means that it has not repriced back to where it normally does coming out of recession. It's still very cheap. But the big however here is unlike 2010, 13, 18, when the Fed was quick to pivot, and Janet Yellen already admitted they made a fiscal policy, monetary policy mistake, they have said they're going to sit on their hands for a lot longer this go around. Yeah. So I think there's a chance that fe- that value could actually take the mantle from growth and be an extended period of outperformance, not just kind of repricing back to where it normally is. Andrew, thank you so much for that uh, uh, explanation. Quincy, great to see you as always. We appreciate your time, both of you. And more than 1.2 million air travelers went through TSA checkpoints yesterday. That made it the 28th consecutive day of a million-plus travelers. And just as demand ramps up, a new airline is taking flight, the first new commercial airline to launch in the United States in 15 years. Phil LeBeau joins us now with the details. Hey, Phil. Hey, Tyler. Say hello to Avello. Avello is a new mainline airline, and you're correct. It's really the first one since Virgin America started back in 2007. Avello Airlines, just three 737s are in the fleet right now, but they're going to be adding three more this summer and then steadily growing. It starts flying on April 28th targeting underserved markets. We're talking about places like Grand Junction, Colorado, Ogden, Utah, Eugene, Oregon. There are going to be flights to 11 cities in the western U.S. So here's the the flight plan, if you will, for Avello. Flights to 11 cities in the western U.S., smaller underserved markets. The base is Burbank, California. So there's your access to the huge L.A. Southern California market. And they'll be targeting leisure travelers who the CEO of Avello believes they're ready, especially in these smaller cities, when they're tired of going through big hubs. 
takes a lot of time to get there. You go through long lines. There's a lot of headaches and hassles. And small airports uh, are, quite honestly, just a, simply a better experience. I think all customers would agree with that. Take a look at shares of Allegiant. Why am I showing you Allegiant going back over the last 10 years? Because Andrew Levy, the CEO of Avello, before he was CFO at United Airlines, before that, he was among the first executives at Allegiant when it was starting up in the late 90s. And at that time, the blueprint was underserved smaller cities, connect them with destinations like Orlando or Las Vegas, et cetera, places where people want to go, Tyler. And that's worked out well for Allegiant. I remember, Tyler, when this all started way back in the late 90s and some of these airlines were targeting these underserved markets, people would scoff. They'd say, oh, come on. How many people in Rockford want to go to Orlando? Oh, it's worked out very well for Allegiant. Avello thinks that blueprint can work again. All right. And they're going to start out in the West and we'll see where it goes from there. Phil LeBeau, thank you very much. Let's get to a market flash right now. Shares of Netflix are spiking higher as the company announces that it has inked a deal for rights to Sony movies including the upcoming Spider-Man films. Uh, and under the deal, Netflix will obtain first pay window rights to Sony titles following their theatrical and home entertainment windows. Big news for Netflix. And coming up, Vegas, baby. We're going to speak exclusively with the CEO of Caesars about reopening demand and the stock's big comeback. And he may be an investor in Bitcoin. But Peter Thiel has a big warning about the cryptocurrency. He says it can be used as a financial weapon We've got the details when we come back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Well, folks, the return of leisure business has given Las Vegas a much-needed shot in the arm, but it is the convention business that is crucial for a full recovery there. Contessa Brewer live in Las Vegas with uh, the latest and a special guest. Hey, Contessa. Hi there, Tyler. Yeah, leisure travelers really are packing Las Vegas on the weekends, but midweek is a bit of a struggle without conventions and meetings to fuel business on the Strip. Now, the city's first big conference, World of Concrete, has confirmed for June. Now, normally that's a 60,000-person-plus event. Nobody expects that kind of attendance this year. But even a fraction of that could challenge Las Vegas because right now many bars and restaurants are still closed, hotels aren't fully staffed, and services are limited. Companies want more clarity on COVID restrictions in order to plan appropriately. Nevada's governor says the state is making progress on reopening. We've reduced some of our uh, social protocols that are in place, our distancing, uh, that sort of thing. We're opening up our capacity a little bit more than we were We've got a massive vaccine rollout. Caesar's CEO Tom Reed joins us now exclusively. It's good to have you with us on CNBC. When the governor says, you know, we're making progress, is it enough? What would you like to see happen in order to truly see business recover? I mean, we have seen responsiveness to the changes in the public health situation when restrictions were tightened in 
November, December, the case rates were pretty scary here, to be candid. And as the, as the cases pull back, we've seen the restrictions ease and we've seen business come back. What we need as we move forward, presuming the public case numbers continue to move in the right direction, is further loosening that would allow us to offer full services to all of our group business that's coming. Uh, as you know, we built this, the Forum Convention Center across the street from us here. It opened days before everything shut down. So we were ready for group as business back then, and we're certainly ready for it to return So now. you've got a brand spanking new facility. Yeah. How many uh, attendees do you expect in with World of Concrete? And, and then talk to me a little bit about your convention calendar for the second half of 2021. So we're presuming more attrition than normal for any group that's booked coming up. We just don't know how quickly people are going to come back. So we see the same headline numbers that you do in terms of uh, what signed up for the conference. We don't know what ultimately shows. In terms of forward bookings, our forward bookings, both for the second half of this year and into 22, are extremely strong. You know, well into double digits. We were 32% above same time last year for the second half of this year and over 10% above for 22, looking back to wow. similar dates in the past. So business groups are, are wanting to come back. We've just got to make sure that we can accommodate them. In, uh, in, uh, on the East, I'm wondering if I come to a convention or if I come to some entertainment function at, uh, in Las Vegas, how am I going to feel? Is it going to feel different? Is the experience going to be the same as it was three years ago? Or is there going to be social distancing and mask wearing? And, and how is the experience going to be different, if at all, from the way it was? Well, you're certainly, Tyler, going to be wearing masks for the foreseeable future. We would expect uh, social distancing requirements to start to ease as vaccinations continue to roll out. Uh, the, the protocols developed here by the entire industry are extraordinary in terms of the safety of how we can host groups now. And you're not going to have to worry about feeling safe, but it's not going to feel like three years ago yet. I'm hearing the response and the recovery in the regionals is breaking records. Yeah, so we're seeing, and I spoke to this uh, in our investor communications recently, kind of in the middle of February, system-wide, including Las Vegas, we saw an incredible pickup in demand. If you walked around here in November, December, our midweek occupancy was as low as the high 20s in the Caesar system. We're now running in the 70s on weekdays and some weekdays in the 80s and weekends are full. So Vegas has come back with leisure travel and the regional pickup has been extraordinary. There's a lot of pent up demand out there. Is it there. sustainable? Uh, it certainly is for you know, the near to medium term. You've got a lot of pent-up demand, cabin fever. You've got a lot of people flush with cash. And what we're seeing, whether it's through because of vaccination, because of improving numbers, or just because of COVID fatigue, they're starting to come out in numbers. I know that there was so much attention on New York. The budget just came out. There's some still confusion over how they roll out 
mobile sports gambling. And then this question of licenses for the New York metropolitan area, my sense is it has left some of your competitors on the strip very disappointed. How are you feeling about that process in New York and the possibility of expanding there? So I tell you, I go into all of these uh, state legislative efforts expecting to be disappointed. So New York, <laughs> New York did not uh, let me down there. Um, we would have liked a more open mobile sports picture. And of course, if if New York is to move forward with downstate ca- casinos, particularly in Manhattan, given our brand and our database, yeah. we would certainly be interested in taking a look. I, I, I think it's really interesting that you're doing that. I didn't want to let you go without mentioning we were expecting the deal with William Hill to close uh, potentially this week. It hasn't happened yet, and I know because of that you don't really want to get into a lot of detail. But the, the landscape for sports betting and iGaming, are you as optimistic as you were the, the last time we talked? Yes. I mean, I've said repeatedly that this is the biggest growth opportunity that this space has seen in three decades, really since the regional riverboat casinos started to be legalized. We see huge opportunity in sports and online, and we think when we close the William Hill transaction, we have all the tools to be a leader in the space. All right. I'm waiting for a word on that with bated breath. Tom Reek, thank you very much for joining us today. Great to see you in person in Las Vegas. How do you like them apples, Tyler? That is great. It's good to hear. And uh, there is, I'm sure, people want to get out. They just do. They want to be among other people. People need people. Contessa, thanks. And Contessa will be in Las Vegas apparently all week long, which is really just one more day, but that's great. Uh, And tomorrow on Power Lunch, uh, she'll have an exclusive sit-down with MGM Resort CEO Bill Hornbuckle. Meanwhile, coming up right after this, top value investor Bill Nygren of Oakmark says there's still plenty of bargains in the market despite prices being where they are, namely records. We'll tell you where he sees those bargains. And the big driver shortage of 2021 is leading to an epic battle between Uber and Lyft. The exchange returns after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. 
All right, folks, uh, welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. The markets right now are higher. The Dow is uh, eking out a small gain, up 11 points, a very minor one there. But it was down about 105 points earlier today. uh, And you can see the S&P 500 powering up again, uh, almost at 4,100. Let's look at the sectors. And you see, what is it, 6 out of 11, uh, 7 out of 11 are positive right now. Uh, led by technology, the trailers today, energy, communication services, real estate, and financials. Let's go to Rahel Solomon for a news update. Hey, Rahel. Hi, Tyler. Hello, everyone. A medical expert in the Derek Chauvin trial is testifying that George Floyd died from a lack of oxygen from being pinned down on the pavement. Prosecutors are trying to show that Floyd died because of Chauvin's actions. Defense lawyers, meantime, are trying to convince jurors that Floyd was also responsible for his death. More on the case tonight on the news with Shepard Smith. Florida is suing the federal government and the CDC, saying that the cruise industry has been singled out with excessive COVID restrictions. Governor DeSantis wants ships to be allowed to resume cruises immediately. New Jersey has reportedly agreed to a $21 million settlement over longstanding abuse allegations at the state's only prison for women. The settlement covers 20 lawsuits from current and former inmates who claim that they were victims of sexual misconduct. And in the Chablis region of France, winemakers are scrambling to keep their vines from freezing. They're using small fires to try to fight off temperatures that fell into the low 20s overnight. The Burgundy and Bordeaux wine growing regions have also been affected. And selfishly, Tyler, I'm wondering about prices now of wine. Yeah, you'd is wonder that, what, what, what might happen if the not, supply... Not that I'm a wine drinker, of course, but... Yeah, that's fine. You can be. It's good. Thanks for help. Energy and financials, the two best performing sectors so far in 2021. Not so much today, but no matter. Value investor Bill Nygren says stocks in both areas have much more room to to run. He told our Mike Santoli that bank names are cheap and energy stocks are the most underappreciated. And he named Wells Fargo, Bank of America, ConocoPhillips as some of his best ideas. You can catch the whole interview on CNBC.com slash pro. Well, coming up, he may love the idea of Bitcoin, but the venture capitalist Peter Thiel says it is ripe for Chinese manipulation. We've got the details on that. And not a day goes by that another celebrity or sports star launches their own NFT. But sales have actually plunged since their peak. Is it a bust or just a breather? The exchange will debate that after this. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here to help us break down the headlines, Frank Holland, Deidre Boza, and Mike Santoli. Topic number one, folks, the billionaire investor and PayPal co-founder Peter Thiel sounding an alarm on Bitcoin. Speaking at a Nixon Foundation event, Thiel said, quote, I do wonder whether if at this point Bitcoin should also be thought of in part as a Chinese financial weapon against the U.S. It threatens fiat money but it especially threatens the dollar. He says he's not against cryptos, but that the government should take a closer look at why China is long Bitcoin. Bitcoin higher again today, up nearly 700% in the past year. Michael, explain this to me. How would China use Bitcoin as a weapon to weaken the dollar? Well, I think, you know, the, the general premise here is that Bitcoin's ascendance does come at the expense of the dollar's role as the world reserve currency. So uh, if, in fact, China uh, had some kind of participation in that trend where the U.S. dollar is not as central uh, to the world financial system and economy uh, as it was before, 
And meantime, if in fact uh, official Chinese authorities are owning uh, Bitcoin and benefiting from its appreciation, uh, it could, you know, tilt the financial balance of power, I suppose. It is interesting here because, of course, Thiel is very much an advocate for cryptocurrencies and, and Bitcoin as well. He's more or less pointing mm. out that this becomes a little bit disorderly uh, in terms of a power relationship thing if the ultimate destiny of Bitcoin that the true believers see out there for it uh, as sort of overtaking to some degree existing currencies, you know, would have uh, other unintended consequences. So, so Deirdre, you, you spent a lot of time uh, in these circles and know a lot about this, so you're going to have to educate me. I get that Bitcoin is an asset <laughs> that can go up and down, but does that very fact mean make it less likely to be a store of value or a currency that can be used in exchange to buy and, and sell things? I think the idea of it as a store of value is building, even though it is volatile. You've seen this massive run up. But Tyler, I do spend time in technology, but I also spent a lot of time living in China. And I know that it's very hard to argue that China is long Bitcoin. In fact, China sees the cryptocurrency as a bigger threat to the Communist Party, I think, more than it's worrying about it as a threat to the U.S. dollar. What they are interested in is the technology behind Bitcoin, blockchain. You had earlier this week China coming out saying it's going to be launching its own digital yuan. That may be where the real threat is. China is moving quickly on this technology. U.S. It has talked about a digital dollar, but there's been no action. And maybe mm -hmm. for good reason, there needs to be very thoughtful and planned out. But I think that is where the real threat is. And if the Chinese get their massive population to use a digital yuan, that could lead to more usage of Bitcoin. And to mm -hmm. Mike's point, that could eventually sort of take over the U.S. dollar. All right. Let's uh, talk next about a driver shortage hitting Uber and Lyft. Now, both are working to bring those drivers back. Uber launching a $250 million driver stimulus plan, including temporary incentives and payment guarantees, while Lyft is offering bonuses of up to $800. The lack of demand during the uh, pandemic shutdowns uh, led a lot of gig workers to uh, find other sources of income. U.S. Uber drivers uh, logged hours, fell more than 37 percent year over year in the first quarter, while Lyft saw a 42 percent drop in the same period. I guess uh, they're just trying, Deidre, to get the cornerstone of their business back. And the cornerstone is having plenty of drivers there so that pickups can be quick and seamless. Yeah, so we're already seeing demand recover. Question is, is the supply there? This has been sort of a battle that Uber and Lyft have fought over their lifetimes. And it's really reminiscent of the good old days when they had tons, billions in venture capital funding to offer these incentives. It's interesting to see that shares are higher today. That may just be, you know, the broader tech rally. Um, and so far, investors don't think that this is going to add significant costs. But I really wonder if they get into this battle for drivers and eventually perhaps for riders, if Lyft sees this as an opportunity to grab more market share, if we get back into that sort of huge spending on driver incentives and rider mm -hmm. discounts. And what does that do to the path to profitability? Uh, markets don't seem concerned about it right now, but I suppose we'll see how this all plays yeah. out this in year. Incentives, uh, well, we see how good they work for the uh, auto business in many cases. Frank Holland, a question for you as you weigh in on this. How much more or less do you use Uber or Lyft today than you did 15, 18 months ago? 
Well, Tyler, I think you know the answer significantly less. I don't think any of us are getting in a rideshare car as often as we used to before. But I actually think it's really ironic that uh, Uber and Lyft are calling this a stimulus plan because there's been an argument out there that people don't want to work because of the stimulus payments. So this will be a really interesting test. They're incentivizing drivers and people to get into the rideshare business. So we'll see if the, the thing is that people don't want to work or they don't want to be underemployed. I think we overlooked the fact that the world literally changed over the last 12 months. A lot of us have reassessed our time and the value of it and maybe even the value of what they call a side hustle. Mike, any thoughts here? Yeah, I mean, you know, I would go back, Tyler, to uh, to exactly whether this arms race does compromise the, the cases, Deirdre said, for ultimate profitability. We simply don't know, even after all this time as public companies, whether the business models scale properly like technology or if it really is uh, just one of these things where they have to constantly keep pacing uh, in terms of labor shortage and not have their take rates go up. All right, let's uh, move on to sneakers now. The sneaker resale platform StockX is lacing up quite a valuation, now valued at $3.8 billion after its latest funding round. StockX is expected to go public in 2021, coming off a record year for revenue. Cowan estimates the global sneaker resale market could hit $30 billion by 2030. Uh, Frank, you spoke with the StockX CEO. Right. Uh, they must be giddy. Nearly $4 billion in valuation for used sneakers? Right. Yeah, Tyler, I think the CEO was giggling a little bit like you did when you said that $3.8 billion. You know, a phenomenal number, but they're also coming off a really phenomenal year. The pandemic was very good for their business. A lot of people stuck at home, spending money on goods instead of services. Um, when I spoke to Scott Cutler, the CEO of StockX, he really said the other thing that people are looking for is that marketplace experience, not only to buy things, but to be part of a community of sorts and kind of exchange not only goods and money, but ideas. Mike, this uh, this stock has experienced, let's say, a swoosh <laughs> upward, shall we? I mean, it, it seems to me to be a very high valuation for something that does, for a company that provides a service. No doubt about it. There are a lot of sneaker collectors out yeah. there, but they don't manufacture a product as far as I know. No. Well, and, and you know, that's going to be spun as a virtue, actually, because what what investors mm -hmm. love right now is a platform. Uh, something that's basically just kind of a pass through for buying and selling and has a huge potential market. Uh, and, you know, I, I know this sounds ridiculous to say that three point eight billion is less than 10 times its uh, sales. You know, they did four hundred million dollars. Maybe that's reasonable in this world. Uh, but I can't help pointing to Foot Locker trading less than six billion dollars uh, has perhaps eight billion in De sales. Deidre, how do you feel about used sneakers, used clothes? <laughs> I see you wrinkling your nose. I, I only have to say that I'll make it I'll make it quick. 3.8 billion for a company that saw 75% growth is actually, you know, profitable. Uh, Clubhouse people was just valued at four <laughs> billion dollars earlier this week. No revenue, not even an Android app, no monetization there. So I'll just leave it there. Better to have something than nothing, right, Deidre? All right, uh, <laughs> is that it? No, let's go. Let's finally, we're going to go to Best Buy. Getting into the membership game, two hundred dollars now or 179 if you have a Best Buy credit card. Members get exclusive discounts, free product installation, unlimited tech support. The program will be available in 60 locations this month amid reports that Amazon could create its own brick-and-mortar locations to sell electronics and other home goods. Deidre, let me turn to you. $200 sounds like a lot for free installation and unlimited tech support that I might use a couple of times a year, maybe? 
<laughs> uh, well, if you're my mom, you might use that many, <laughs> many times throughout the year. But I agree with you that $200, I'd probably buy it for her, actually, so she wouldn't ask me. But $200 is a steep price tag. And you have to wonder, is this coming too late? I mean, they're already seeing sales kind of fall off from the pandemic peak. They should have introduced this at the start of the pandemic, especially if they want to go up against, say, the Apple Genius Bar, right, which you don't have to pay for. You just have to have an Apple product. So um, I wonder if this is a little bit too little or too much of a price tag, a little bit too late. Um, but we have seen that that flywheel effect works. So perhaps better late than never. Best Buy shares, Mike, down a little bit today, but they are up uh, so far this year and, yeah. and whipping uh, the performance of Amazon. Yeah, they've actually had a pretty good run, although, you know, kind of bumping up against this ceiling from about October uh, at their highs. I do wonder here, I'm not sure if it's marketed this way, uh, but it seems like it might be conducive to a small business, even just a sort of sole proprietorship out of the home, have somebody be your IT support, kind of like Staples and Costco do rely on small businesses to kind of pay uh, those membership fees and then get more of an unlimited service, as opposed to an individual. I'm with you, Tyler. Can't imagine how much of a power user you'd have to be as an individual to really, um, you know, make good use of that uh, service. Frank, uh, I, I think we're all sort of circling around the price point here. Yeah, you know, I tell you, I'm going to paraphrase an old uh, saying. This is a day late and about $100 just too long. Um, right. Maybe $100 I would think about it because the tech support's fantastic and a lot of us have bought laptops and new TVs and TVs that are streaming enabled, but $200 seems like a lot of money. Yeah, but Deirdre, you made a great point. If I could buy this for my mother-in-law and my father-in-law, it would be a great gift. I'll tell you. Thanks, guys. Deirdre, yeah. Frank, Mike, appreciate it. And still ahead, DeafFriendly.com helps users find, rate, and review deaf-friendly businesses, while also seeking to help businesses become more accessible to their hard-of-hearing customers. We're going to talk to the founder, Echo Greenlee, next. And a quick programming note, CNBC's new show, Tech Check, premieres at 11 Eastern on Monday. Carl Quintanilla, the aforementioned Deirdre Bosa, and John Ford, and Julia Borston. They're going to take you inside all things tech. Join us on Monday. They will be joined that day by Uber CEO Dara Kashwasahi. The exchange will be right back. As corporate America strives to become more inclusive, one under-the-radar group is the deaf and hard-of-hearing community. Our next guest saw an opportunity to fill a need and created DeafFriendly.com, a crowdsourced Yelp-style platform for the deaf community. With me now are Melissa Echo Greenlee, the founder of DeafFriendly.com, and her interpreter, Jennifer Mantle. Echo, welcome. It's good to have you with us. Hello, Tiger. Thank you so much for having me today. Um, I'm a deaf person, as you know, and I acquired speaking skills because I lost my hearing when I was eight years old. So that's why I can speak clearly. But today I'm going to go ahead and sign with you. Okay? That sounds absolutely perfect. And uh, thank you again for being with us. Uh, before we get to your business, which is a fascinating one, I know the viewers would like to learn a little bit about your backstory. How did you initially begin to lose your hearing uh, at age eight? What was the cause of it? And then, and then was it a progressive loss of hearing? Sure. So 
I did uh, lose my hearing at the age of eight, but it started in a gradual decline over a number of years from the ages of eight to 18. By the age of 18, I was profoundly deaf. So it was a, a gradual progression of hearing loss. So I was able to speak and be social with hearing people um, until I was about 19, when I then discovered American Sign Language and a group of people who identify as deaf. And that is when I developed a deaf identity and became a proud deaf person and began using American Sign Language in my daily life. Was the cause of your hearing loss a, a virus or a genetic issue? What was it? Actually, no, uh, there were no, there was no traumatic injury or illness. It just started to decline very slowly and gradually for unknown reasons. And uh, I actually participated in a number of research studies in California and was eventually diagnosed with an auditory neuropathy, which uh, is damage to the nerve that connects the ear and the brain. So my ears actually function regularly, typically, but for some reason, my brain is unable to interpret what I do here. And that uh, is potentially genetic, but unknown. Yeah. So I, I was very interested to learn that in the United States alone, there are 48 million deaf and hard of hearing people. And, and like you, I would sense that in daily living, they are underserved by the kinds of things that TripAdvisor or Yelp would do to help them identify businesses that go out of their way to welcome uh, the hard of hearing and the deaf. This was your idea. What do you do? How many people are you reaching? And how do you recruit people to send you reviews uh, of uh, businesses? Yes. So one of the biggest challenges for deaf and hard of hearing people in places of business is that people are not aware of how to serve us. They have no idea how to work with deaf and hard of hearing people. So I was thinking, how can I teach the world to become more accessible to me and my community? So something that I noticed is that businesses are very attentive to the reviews that they receive. So I thought, this was a great way to, in turn, educate individuals and get their intention about what is needed from them for our community and how to serve us better through these reviews. So that's the reason why I decided to found a, a review platform that actually is educating businesses about how to become more deaf-friendly and more accessible. And you're right, there are 48 million deaf and hard of hearing people in the United States. And that's about 12% of the total population. That's a, a large demographic and a large market. Yes, and so as businesses our... businesses need to pay attention to us. And as our population ages, I assume, uh, you know, obviously more people will slip into uh, the hard of hearing category. So if I'm a user of Yelp, let's say, or TripAdvisor, I know the kinds of things that that businesses might be rated on, the service, the food, uh, were they, uh, did they get my order correct, and so on and so forth. I assume you do all of that on your website, but you must be looking for other things that are of particular importance to the deaf and hard of hearing. Give me some examples of what you grade them on. Certainly. 
So our platform is for deaf and hard of hearing people to provide a score and also describe the reasoning that they've given such a, re a rating. My experience as a deaf person in places of business is that my needs, like in fast food delivery, uh, my needs are not necessarily prioritized. What I need is eye contact from the person I'm trying to interact with. I need patience. I need willingness to use a variety of communication methods, whether it be writing on a piece of paper back and forth or gesturing, pointing at visual cues to indicate what item I would like to order and so on. Or sometimes people need interpreting or captioning depending on the situation. So there are a variety of needs that deaf and hard of hearing consumers have that are different from those of hearing people. So in the review, we actually encourage people to reach out to the business and we tell them, you know, hey, you might need to improve in such an area. You might need help or training in improving your services. So we reach out to the community with the effort of trying to make the experience better right. for deaf and hard of hearing consumers. Let me get one final, very quick question and answer in uh, for about DeafFriendly.com. How do you make money? Is it advertising supported? Is it subscriber supported? What? DeafFriendly.com is a nonprofit, <laughs> but what we also do to earn money is provide trainings. We have some businesses that do uh, ask for consultation and we provide trainings to their staffs on how to become more comfortable with deaf and hard of hearing customers. And that is how we earn some revenue. Both of you, thank you so much for this time you spent with us. We enjoyed it. I, I think uh, we educated a lot of people uh, about something they didn't know anything about. Melissa Echo Greenlee and Jennifer Mantle, the interpreter. DeafFriendly.com is the website. Thank you again so much. Thank you. Thank you. And thank that, you. that is the gesture for thank you, I'm told, in American Sign Language. Thank you yes, very much. Yes, it is. Good. Thank you. All right. I got it right. Still ahead, NFT sales have plunged since February, sparking the bust or breather debate. We will take a look at the wild ride for non-fungible tokens next. Fungi coming up. Everyone is getting into NFTs one way or another these days, but sales have actually been declining. So could the NFT bubble already be bursting? Robert Frank joins me now with more. Hey, Robert. Hey, Tyler. Well, NFT prices falling by more than 70 percent from their recent highs as that supply continues to explode. Average NFT sale prices down from 3900 to 1400 just between February and the end of March. That's according to nonfundable.com. Transaction volume of NFTs also falling by about half from 80,000 a week to just over 40,000. Now, the artist Mike Winkleman, better known as Beeple, he sold that $69 million NFT at Christie's back in March. He says some NFTs could go to zero before they finally become a broader asset class. Now, there are two big drivers of this decline. CryptoPunks and Top Shots. CryptoPunks, those are computer-generated characters. They helped launch the whole NFT craze. They were selling for over $7 million back in February. They have since totally crashed. Meanwhile, weekly sales of Top Shots, those are the NBA video highlights. 
They reached $125 million back in February, then fell almost 90% to just $15 million. Now, it seems like everyone is minting NFTs now. Tom Brady launching his own NFT company. Playboy partnering with Nifty Gateway to launch their own NFTs. And Sotheby's and Phillips also both announcing auctions of theirs. Tyler, I'm sure people will just buy the Playboy NFTs for the interviews. Just for the interview. It's just for the articles. That's exactly right. We got to come up with our own NFT, Robert. You and me, brother, we're going to do one. I'm game. Thanks so much. Power lunch after this quick break. We'll be right back. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 